Hi, everyone. Welcome to Six Figure Authors, the show that helps you take your writing career to the next level. I'm Andrea Pearson, and I'm here with my two co-hosts. I'm Joe Lalo. And I'm Lindsay Baroker. And our guest today is Honoré Quarter. She is somebody who has um, guest, um, guest, uh, what a guest hosted, I guess you'd say, on the Sell More Book Show several times. That's how I found out about her. Uh, we are both in the story bundle. Man, this is what happens. I had a neighbor come to the door and my brain is just fried. I was like trying to get out of there as fast as I could. And now I'm like, I don't even know what's going on anymore. Anyway, so she's in the story bundle with me, the Nano One. Um, Honoré is an executive and strategic book and publishing coach, TEDx speaker, and the author of dozens of books, including You Must Write a Book and the Prosperous Writer book series. She's co-author of The Nifty 15 with Brian Meeks. That's the book that's in our story bundle, I believe. And Honoré passionately coaches business professionals, writers, and aspiring nonfiction authors who want to publish their books to bestseller status, create a platform, and develop multiple streams of income. You can find out more about her at honorécorder.com, though I'll probably ask her to tell us that again at the end of the show. Welcome to our podcast, Honoré. I am so psyched to be with all of you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm excited too. Um, and as I said, um, you're one of the authors participating in this year's Business Books for Authors um, Story Bundle. We'll d- get more into that a little bit later. Um, but first, why don't you tell us how you got into indie publishing? Oh, I got into indie publishing because I wasn't a writer and I didn't go to college. And so I thought indie publishing was the only option for me. And as it turns out, it was kind of the best thing ever, right? Like not going traditional publishing and not trying to go that route actually has ended up being um, a blessing in so many ways. So it was um, because of my low self-esteem and lack of belief in myself, which is where I started, but it's turned out okay. That's awesome. Um, And um, let's see, we're going to talk about writing and marketing nonfiction. You do a whole ton of nonfiction and it's... um, some, some of your books are really, really like the titles. They just really, really grab me. And, and, um, I will read them. I have, I have been on it in a non reading phase the last year. I've just kind of been burned out on everything. So, um, but, um, could you, what, what is the number one thing an author of nonfiction can or should do to market their book? Um, identify who their ideal reader is and market solely to that ideal reader really profile down the qualities and characteristics of those ideal readers and um, just write to that person, market to that person, talk to that person, engage with that person, um, create a super fan out of that person, and then multiply that times, I don't know, a thousand, 10,000, a million, whatever, however many zeros you want. It always seems that with nonfiction, it's a little uh, more intuitive. Maybe I'm going to say easier. Hopefully that's not offensive to build a platform because they get who you are right on your blog articles and stuff. Whereas you can writing a novel is a little different and they don't know (laughs) from your blog if they're actually going to enjoy your story. But I guess I'm curious, what are the steps? Like, what do people need to be doing right now to build a platform uh, before they publish or after they publish for nonfiction? Sure. So just right where I, right where I left off with that last question, which is like identify the, the, I call it the avatar. So ideal reader, avatar, client, customer. Usually someone is writing a nonfiction book because they have an area of expertise and they want to find more customers or clients. They're using it as a marketing piece. And so all of their messaging, all of their social media, their emails, their content of their book or books, um, their blog posts, 
their voicemail, outgoing voicemail message, their email signature, all of that needs to be in concert. It's kind of like being well-dressed. It doesn't need to match. It needs to go, right? So it all needs to flow together so that the person who is your ideal reader would probably also be your ideal client or customer. And they need to understand who it is that you are and what it is that you are offering them and how you are offering it to them and how you can benefit them. So all of that kind of needs to go together. So if someone is in the process of writing their first book or their first first book in a series, right? Even in the nonfiction world, we like series just as much as the fiction uh, sector. Um, really understanding who they're talking to and then making sure that all of their messaging and everything they're doing lines up with that. I don't know if I'm making sense because it's dark outside and daylight savings time and all of the things is that am i am i being clear you're good apparently guys on a gets up at 4 a.m and we're <laughs> we're recording in the wee hours of after 8 p.m so yes it was like how about 8 p.m on a thursday night i was like i would never have the conflict at 8 p.m on a thursday night because i'm usually uh, you know almost out <laughs> so here we are so bear with my unintelligible answers please uh, well, no, I think that that's good. And I'm curious, how many things do people need to be doing now? Like, is blogging still effective for building a platform? Or do you see people moving over to YouTube and podcasting more? Or what do you need to... Bare minimum, <laughs> what do you have to be doing? Yeah, so I think it's the thing that makes you happy, Lindsay. And I think that there's no one answer. So I think some people say, well, everyone's going onto YouTube, so I'm going to go do YouTube videos, even though I don't feel comfortable in front of a camera and, I, and I, I'm more comfortable putting my words in writing as opposed to speaking my words. I think people do what other people do because they think it's the thing they need to do. So yes, blogging is still a thing. YouTube is a thing. Instagram stories is a thing. But if you would rather chew off your arm and beat yourself to death with any of those things, then don't do those things because they're not going to make you happy and they're not authentic to you and they're not going to connect readers to you. Ultimately, all of the things that you mentioned and the thing that I mentioned, right? They are all... um vehicles to connect you to your readers. And your readers are ultimately perhaps meant to be something more, right? Your book is that first point of engagement for people. Are they going to take your course? Are they going to hire you for coaching? Are they going to bring you in as a speaker? And so if you're doing something that feels inauthentic to you, then people are going to sense that and they're not going to follow you and they're not going to resonate with you and they're going to move on to the next person. You really sometimes have a fraction of a second to engage someone. So whichever of those platforms feels right to you, do those things. And if none of those platforms feels right to you and you want to go stand on a street corner and talk to people and hand out your books, then go and do that, right? It's the thing that makes you feel like you're connecting with your audience um, in the most effective and authentic way for you. Does all that make sense? It does. Uh, I think it can be a little little overwhelming for people who are newer to think about doing all that stuff or even picking a couple. Or even picking one. Yes. Do you find that advertising is possibly, if you have the money to spend, a way to shortcut that or something to do in addition to? Um, Sure. It is not something that I recommend someone do unless they have a financial reserve that they would not... um, be sad or upset or hungry if they lost it. So that's the, that's the 
the last line of defense. When I work with any client of any budget, I always say that the advertising, so the Amazon ads, the Facebook ads, the Google ads, any of those things are the very last thing that they could do. And they're optional. They need to find someone who knows what they're doing to put those into practice and to put money in that. But it really has to be part of your budget that you're like, if I get this back, wonderful. And if it's if I'm going to light it on fire because my hands are cold, also wonderful. And if you happen to get a return from it, then that's great. But it's never like the top line of anything. I believe that... come And my philosophy is coming at the book building relationship is like, I just want to connect with one reader and turn them into a super fan. If they're the right reader, I want to connect with them and engage with them. And they're going to go out and do the marketing. They're going to tell... So I said, I got an email from someone today who said, I've given away six copies of your book. And I was like, now I'm going to name a day after you. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's yeah, the, priceless. The word of mouth marketing is definitely the best and cheapest and least time consuming thing you'll ever get. Yes, correct. Um, you mentioned series and, and I know in fiction, that, of course, that can really help with that. Like advertising can make more sense if you can get them on board for like six books. But yep. does that work in nonfiction where you can't really do a cliffhanger or anything like that? You don't do a cliffhanger, but you can solve a problem per book. That is one way to do a series. So I wrote the Successful Single Mom book series and I um, started with one book and then realized that single moms had these different problems and not all of them had all of the problems. So I wrote the successful single mom cooks cookbook because I was a single mom and my kid wanted to eat every day. And it was like that thing at the end of the day where I was like, Oh crap, I fed her yesterday. Like, how can we be at mealtime again? And so I came up with quick recipes that were on the table in less than 20 minutes, but not every single mom had that problem. Uh, some single moms wanted to get married again. Some wanted to get fit. Some wanted to go to college. Right. So I solved these individual problems in these individual books to give people a place to go if that's where they wanted to go. Another way to do a series is to say, um, like I did a, a series with Ben Hale called the Like a Boss series. So we did Write Like a Boss, Publish Like a Boss, and Market Like a Boss. Some people have already written and published a book, so they're like not concerned with those first two pieces. So it is a cliffhanger of sorts, right? It's like, well, you publish it. Well, now what do you do? You can move into marketing. And then the book we're here to talk about today is the Nifty 15, which is part of the Prosperous Writer book series. And those books are just, they all kind of go together, but they are not required reading. You can literally read the Nifty 15 and write your book in 15 minutes a day, but you don't have to know that there are any other books in the series. But if you put a book in a book series, then some people will be very likely to say, what else does this author have? And boom, right there on the cover, this is one of the books in that series. And it is a, an automatic way to send them um, into your backlist and into your front list. It's, it's interesting. I hadn't thought about it, but like when you structure a series like that, uh, it's almost like a romance in that each one can be an entry point. Like you don't need to have read the previous or the following. Uh, like no one's going to enter the world knowing Lord of the Rings book one and being able to start with book two. But well, plenty of people will have already written a book but don't know how to market it. And they'll just start on book three of your series. It's, right. it's, a, it's an interesting, I don't, it's not a uniqueness, but it's an interesting aspect of marketing nonfiction. So another thing about marketing nonfiction, which I think is interesting, is um, it's a bit of an oddball thing because you very often will see people talk about marketing types of fiction. So, uh, but, but 
equally often, you'll only see people talk about marketing nonfiction as a full umbrella, which is particularly strange to me because nonfiction has way more range, in my opinion, than even fiction does, because it includes things like cookbooks, self-help books, travel guides, textbooks. So uh, like, do different tactics apply to different types of nonfiction books? Sure. Yes. And so it really just depends on the type of the type of author and the type of nonfiction book. So yes, you wouldn't market a cookbook the same way you would market a guidebook, the way you'd market a journal, the way you would market just a standalone self-help book. All of those have their own unique marketing plan. And then I always come at every single book with the fundamentals in mind. Like how do you reach a goal, right? We got to decide what you want. And then you have to say, what's my deadline for it? And those sorts of things. And then really go granular based on the goal of the author. Like why did the author write the book? And what do they want from the book? Are they wanting to sell books? Are they wanting to generate clients from books or both? Are they local? Are they regional? Are they statewide? Are they, you know, in the tri-state area or are they global? And they're going to market the book throughout the whole entire universe, right? So all of those things go into the factor goat factor into the overall marketing plan of the book and where we start, even as we're looking at a blank piece of paper. I want to answer all those questions. I want to know all the things (laughs) before then I say, what goes in the book and where does it go in the book? And how are you connecting with the reader? And how do you connect with someone who isn't a reader, but they need your expertise? All of that factors in. So, uh, like, are there any uh, are there any aspects that say are universal for for uh, nonfiction, or contrarily, are there any that you would absolutely avoid in certain circumstances? In terms of marketing or content, we'll say marketing. Let's say marketing. Um, well, I think the best marketing is word of mouth marketing, as we talked about, and the best way to um, have people to market your book word of mouth is to have your content be very solid and to solve the problem that the book says that it solves. So if I read the four hour work week, Tim Ferriss, I want four hour work week, right? So truth in advertising, advertising is in the title. Um, I'm trying to think as far as, um, marketing the book, um, always, um, identify your avatar, always market only to your avatar. Don't skew your algorithms by going outside. And that's a, that's probably a complete conversation in and of itself. Um, and always market forever, right? When I talk about book marketing, like your book is not an avocado. It's not good between four and 5 PM on Tuesday, right? It's good from now and 90 days from now, assuming that the content of the book is not, hashtag 2020, right? It's not specific to how to survive COVID, then your book should be evergreen. The content of the book would be evergreen, which is pre-marketing thought, and then making sure that you are just doing things to market your book all the time. I really hope how to survive COVID does not become an evergreen title that we still need in five years, 10 years. Amen. Amen to that. So as an author of nonfiction, do you feel... Um, can authors make a living just as writers or is it kind of necessary to branch out and do speaking and coaching uh, in order to, to have a good career? Well, it depends. I'm going to get the lawyer answer and I'm not even a lawyer, <laughs> Lindsay. Um, it depends. So it depends on, um, it depends on the content of the book. So is the content of the book enough to sell enough copies, right? So are you hitting one of the few, um, 
uh, topics that people tend to buy more of. Um, let's talk about money. If you write a book about money, how to make money, those sorts of things, those books tend to sell better than, you know, how to sell kitten leg warmers, for example, right? We're, so we're going to stick with the, the topics that people are interested in. Um, also what's making a living. I always find that interesting. Some, everyone defines making a living and making a prosperous living different. So I'm, I have, want to have enough money to live on is quite different for everybody. Some people need 50,000 a year. Some people want a hundred thousand a year. Some people want a million a year. So making a living has to be defined. And then depending upon, um, how much you need, it does make sense if you're writing a nonfiction book that you have other places for people to go. Just having one book, chances are you're not going to make enough money from that one book unless it's a lightning strike, unless you're a unicorn. You will want to supplement it and probably, I'm not going to should on anybody, but I, you should, or it would make sense to having have those ancillary products and services that people can buy to have a solid long-term career because I don't know that there's any book really other than maybe the Bible, maybe Think and Grow Rich, right? Books that have steadily over time just continued to sell and sell and the trend is upward, right? So any book, even if you do a really good job, it could go up for three, five, 10 years, maybe. But even those books are going to come down and then you have to, you get to still eat, right? So you have to have that next thing that you're marketing the next book, the next piece piece of your business that you're selling that and other another asset someone could buy from you. All right. So uh, a phrase you'll often hear when people start talking about nonfiction and, and marketing nonfiction is the phrase building authority. Uh, because contrary to, to fiction, uh, one of the key tenets of nonfiction is that people have to feel as though they like you're the kind of person they want to learn from. Right. So how important is it to establish yourself as an expert and how do you do that? Well, it's the chicken or the egg, I think, right? So some people um, build um, education and experience, and then they recognize that they are not seen as the authority until they are the author. So they then become an author, which then establishes them as an authority. Um, uh, so it's one hand washes the other, I think, in my opinion. Um, I tend to encourage people to write from a place of authority, which means that they have expertise, they have education, they have experience, they've got street cred. They're not coming from the place of, I think I'll write a book about it and figure it out. Although Think and Grow Rich, the book that I just men mentioned was written by Napoleon Hill, who was poor as a church mouse. And he spent 20 years interviewing rich people and reported on it. So he came from the reporter aspect. So you really can write a book reporting on the success or the advice of other people and create a very fine book and position yourself as an authority in that position. And you can do it the other way as well. I don't know that there's one that's better than the other, but if you are a professional who wants to engage clients, I would say not deciding to write a book after six months and then saying, okay, now I know everything. Right? Let me do your brain surgery and see how that, <laughs> see how that works out. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of people who have done well as like content gatherers, or I'm not sure what the, I feel like there's a term that's somebody put it in the chat, Joe. <laughs> that reporter. Reporter. Yeah. They're gathering information and reporting. That they um, 
As far as nonfiction goes, I'm curious what you, you know, we often hear that you can charge more than you can for fiction. And I notice your nifty 50, if it's outside of the nano bundle is only two ninety nine. but then you've got the miracle mornings at nine ninety seven. What are your thoughts on pricing and how do you decide? I have 12 things that I consider, um, and not all of them are going to come to mind. So if someone knows what they are, they can put them in the chat. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, <laughs> Um, so the nifty 15 is 299 because it's a very, um, small topic. It is one specific piece of advice that is applied in a short book. And so if I charge 997 for that book, someone would be really mad and we would get some hate. We don't want the hate mail. Um, so the shorter books, um, can be priced lower. Although if you're solving a big problem that someone would have to pay a lot of money for outside of the book, then you could charge more for it. So I have read terrific books that were our reads that solved a big problem. And I would have paid 10, 20, $30,000 for that piece of advice. Happy to pay 10 bucks for the hour of reading to have my problem solved. So it really depends on how much the author would charge to solve the problem that the book solves, not necessarily the length, although the link length can factor in. As far as the Miracle Morning books, that is a very strong brand. And those books tend to sell no matter how we've priced them. And Hal likes the 997, who likes the seven in the price. And so all of the books are 997 all the time. And the books sell and have been translated into 39 languages. And so who are we to argue? with how that works. I generally encourage people to price right in line with their genre. So their particular area of expertise, how the other books are faring and to kind of stay right in the middle unless they have uh, 50 years of experience or 20 years of experience, whereas the other authors haven't done as good of a job or don't have as much education and experience. So there's some, some different pieces of criteria and really we have a very small window to choose from. If we're going to get that 70% royalty, if we're talking about Amazon, you've got to go from $2.99 to $9.99. So there's a little window in there and they do have a recommendation that they will make if you want to use their algorithms and their data, which is very helpful. And so you can play around with it. You can change that price um, and see where it sells. And I've noticed that some of my books, when I priced them lower, cause I was feeling nice and generous. As soon as I raised the price, they started to sell better. So, you know, it really, um, it's the, it depends, um, answer again, it's kind of figuring out like what, what problem does your book solve? How long is the book? How experienced and educated is the author? And, and what does the book offer the reader and how valuable is it to them? It is a shame that some readers will judge only on length when I've read so many nonfiction books where you're like, I really wish they just put this in 40 yeah, pages yeah. instead of, especially I think traditional publishing, they kind of have a requirement, like it's not worth printing if it's not at least a couple hundred pages. Right? Yeah. And that's gratuitous and people don't like that. I remember reading a third book by an author that I had loved the first two books and I felt like about halfway through the book, I kept waiting for him to get to the point. And I thought, oh, he had a three book deal and this is the third book. And he was low on ideas and high on pressure. That was my sense, right? It was like, I'm, I was, I got it as an audio book and I just, I was like 1.7, 2.0, 2.5 on the speed. Like it was Mickey Mouse reading this audio book. And I'm like, surely there's some gold in here somewhere. Right. And finally, 
I was like, okay, he must have had a three book deal. There it is. But it's gratuitous and people don't like it. They get cranky and then they write bad reviews and then that's the hate mail we don't like. You know that that, that, that sort of thing exists when there's an entire service called Blinkist that just boils full books down to 15 minute sound bites. So like clearly, clearly uh, a tremendous number of people feel as though you can condense the useful information in nonfiction. Um, all right. So one of the things about nonfiction that I've found, uh, this goes with both titles and blurbs is they tend to use fairly assertive language. Like they project themselves to be the definitive answer or the text, <laughs> like the go-to canon text for a given topic. Yes. Uh, and, uh, this is, uh, the, you know, the, the question where I project myself into the situation, but can you still succeed offering your like sort of nonfiction up as an option or do you have to be assertive, uh, in order to sell? Because I know if I ever wrote a, a nonfiction book, it'd be like, here's one way to do it. <laughs> Um, are you talking about the content or the blurb? I'm speaking specifically about the, about the blurb, because often when I actually read the nonfiction book, they're fairly straightforward about how there's a myriad of options. I'm teaching you my technique, but I've found that particularly in like the, the marketing. Oh, I see what you're saying. There's a disconnect between the blurb and the content of the book. Um, that's an interesting question. I hadn't considered that before. Um, I think that all of the content I've ever written is, here's my perspective on it. I'm not Jesus. So that's not the one way. There's not one way to do it. Um, but, you know, I've been fairly successful. So I'm writing this from my perspective of being successful. Here's my recipe. Here's the cookie I baked. If you like this cookie, go bake this cookie. Right. Um, so I don't really know that I'm answering your question. I think I need more time and more sleep in order to answer it effectively. But no, I would say I, the answer is yes. You can present you can present yours as an as an option as opposed to just listing it as gospel. Yes, because I there's no gospel. There's no gospel. I just think that I I live in the world of that. I live in I don't live in the world of right or wrong. I live in the world of effective or ineffective. So it's like well, this is what I think would be effective, and it's it could be effective for you. It's less than ten bucks. Give it a try. <laughs> See what happens. Could be great. That's awesome. Um, okay, we're going to shift into author mindset for a bit, if that's all right with you. Yeah. Um, so the first time I heard someone mention the word affirmation was on a podcast that I listened to called Entree Leadership. And I was like, what the heck? Affirmation? Oh my gosh, are you serious? You can't be kidding. You have to be kidding me. I'm like, yeah. this is like baloney. Anyway, so I'm not much into abstract ideas or trying to change outcomes by attacking thoughts. I'm like, either you do it or you don't. You know, that's, I'm very straightforward and very analytical and not super based on emotions. But I decided to give affirmations a try. And this was a few years ago and they helped. I can't, I was just like, what, what the heck? I know. I was like, shut the front door. Yeah. <laughs> I broke through a, a huge burnout phase that I was in. And I wrote some of my most successful novels uh, in, in like the year that followed that. And every now and then when I find myself just like, just falling into ruts of like comparisonitis or just not really feeling that zing, I'll pull out my little affirmation index cards and I'll go through them again. And so my question for you is, can you explain why that helped and how having a positive mindset affects productivity and success? Sure. Um, so thoughts are things and words are things and words create results. And I love that you were like, no, this can't be a thing. And oh crap, it's a thing, right? <laughs> like, oh darn. It worked. I hate that. And I love that. And now what? Um, so I think what we say when we talk to ourselves is really, really powerful. 
And there are so many, there's so many things we could talk about right here. First, we are not taught to say, taught to say to ourselves, I'm awesome. I've got this. I can do this. It's more, who am I to do this? And that person can do it because they're taller, smarter, they've written more books. And I started this whole conversation with, you know, I didn't go traditional publishing because who's going to pick the girl with no college education to, and publish her book? Um, jokes on them because they would have made a lot of money, but oh, it's fine. We're all good. <laughs> so um, I think it works because when you are intentional and purposeful with what you say, when you talk to yourself, that informs and influences what you do based on what you say. And I loved when I was teaching my daughter how to drive, you know, she's like super nervous. She's got her little glasses on. And I was like, how are you doing? She's like, mom, I got this. I got this. I got this. And she did like the best, the best right in those days when she was having that positive talk to herself. And I too am the person that listens to my think up app every single morning. So meditation first. And then I listen to my affirmations that are recorded in my voice because you got to put that good stuff in, in order for the good stuff to come out. And there are so many reasons why we wouldn't do well, right? There's, there's that, oh, well, gosh, look at that book that somebody wrote and it was absolutely amazing. And I'm not that talented. I don't have that education. Um, there are so many books for people to read. Why would they read my book? I mean, I've heard it all, right? But uh, people tell me what's going on with their monkey mind. And so you have to turn down the volume of the monkey and turn up the voice of possibility that's inside your head. And I think that it works because when we are saying great things to ourselves, we are more likely to then take action on that. It's interesting to me because it, uh, it sort of feeds back. If you're, if you are, you know, if, if your hope is to set a good mindset for writing nonfiction, what you're doing here effectively is providing the service to yourself that you're hoping to provide to someone else. You know, like yes. there, there's a, a lot yes. of people who are, who are like psyching themselves up to write a self-help book and the words that got them to do it are exactly the words someone else is going to need to hear. Yes. Yes. And yeah, all of the yes. Just yes. So, <laughs> all of um, the yes. So uh, some of the platitudes when it comes to the, the author mindset and just regarding writing can be really self-defeating and demoralizing if you start to slip. It's like a lot of people, and I don't believe this, by the way, will say, oh, you aren't a writer unless you write every day or you can't succeed without, you know, frequent, consistent releases. So, uh, so there's uh, like a lot of things that people will tell themselves. They think they're being affirming and they think they're being motivating, but they, they if they don't hit that mark, they start to fall apart. Right. How do you balance motivation with being overwhelmed? Oh gosh, that's a great question too. And so let me take that first point of um, when someone tells you what you should do, you should tell them to shh. <laughs> right? Um, you are a writer if you're if you're if you've written ever, right? And you intend to write. So let's just get that out of the way. Let, let's not let's not allow other people to project onto us what we should be doing. Aren't we in the middle of NaNoWriMo? So shouldn't we be writing every single day? 1,667 words. Well, that's what the chart says. But some days we do 2,000 and some days we do 20. And that's okay. So let's just start with whatever you're doing. If you're making an effort, that's okay. If you're thinking about making an effort, that's okay. We want to get to the next level, which is actually putting our fingers to the keyboard or our pen to paper, right? So I think... Um, 
And ask me your second question again, because I think I answered the first one and then I might have forgotten the second one because, you know, 8 p.m. <laughs> sure. Uh, uh, <laughs> how do you balance uh, motivation with becoming overwhelmed? Like, how do you set a good goal for yourself without feeling defeated if you don't hit it? Um, I like the rule of don't miss two days if you miss one. So I like, so, and not even like, like, let's make that an 80 20 rule. So if four days out of five, four times out of five, <laughs> like I write, I make it, I make it successful. And here's a, I think what's, here's a good answer. I think I make it really easy to feel successful and really hard to feel like a failure. When, when we talk about rules, right, there's that rule of like, oh, I have to write every day or I'm not a writer. Well, how about if you thought about writing, that's the first way you feel good. If you wrote down a sentence, that's a way to feel good. If you captured an idea of a scene that you want to write or a chapter that you want to write, that's good. And you, if you make it easy to feel good, then you're more likely to want to do it because don't you want to do things you feel good about? And if you're then saying, well, I haven't written for two days. Oh, I'm a loser. Oh, then are you going to write the third day? Are you going to keep beating yourself up? Probably not. So it's the rule of how do I know if I'm successful? Um, I got up and I opened my keyboard and I looked at the cursor blinking. Okay, good. I'm going to give myself a little check mark for that. And you move, you take steps in the right direction and you make it really hard to feel like a failure because feeling like a failure would mean you'd have to go for six straight months without writing. Well, we can't feel a failure because we're not going to go six straight months without writing because somebody's going to ask us how our novel's going on array two years later, right? <laughs> go, well, I'm still working on it through a nano, right? <laughs> so I'm still working on it. I'm still in the game. So therefore, for me, it's easy for me to feel successful. And that's the advice that I give is like, make it easy for yourself to feel good and really hard for yourself to feel bad. And that's not just writing. That's life. So we have a lot of listeners who have written quite a few books. They might have tried multiple series if they're uh, fiction. And, you know, they've trying all the marketing stuff, all the things they're supposed to do, and they haven't reached the success that, you know, they see others reach and that they feel they should reach. What kind of, I mean, I feel like with mindset, I feel like if you made any money, you should be like, yeah, I just, I need to crack the code. I can do it. I figure it out eventually, but I, I hate to see people give up. And I feel like a lot of it is just keep going till you figure it out. Um, any thoughts on that? Um, yes, I have 53 nonfiction books that I've written myself and lots of others in series. And I didn't really get my sea legs until well into it. I don't think I really started to call myself an author until book seven. And it, it, like, it wasn't until I kind of got my sea legs, right? I got my balance. I started to feel like, oh, I'm competent at this. Like, this is making sense. And I made every mistake possible also helpful in the learning process because if you learn what doesn't work, that's just one more way that doesn't work. And you you just simply can't compare yourself to someone else because everybody is not coming to the starting line with the same level of intelligence, level of education, level of experience, self-esteem, background, all of those things. So you can't, it's like comparing apples and oranges to to cucumbers and just saying, well, they should all be exactly the same and taste the same and be wonderful. And it's just not a fact of life. And so it's, it's hard to look at someone who writes their first novel and it's a New York times bestseller, or they make a whole bunch of money and you go, well, what's up with that? And I think a better approach would be to say, Oh, that's really cool. If someone could do that, I could do that. I'm going to use that as like 
inspiration as opposed to desperation. Does that make sense? It's just turning it. I think, and I just, maybe I'm just poly, I'm all poly ended up at 834 in the evening, but, <laughs> but I really don't look at someone else and go, why do they have that? And I don't have that. I think, how did they get that? And, and can I deconstruct that? What is the way that they, that they did that? And also sometimes someone's first novel, and this I'm going to share because this was really helpful for me as I'm writing book one and book two in fiction. So I'm finishing my first fiction book while I'm writing my second one for Nano because that's dumb, right? That's like the dumbest thing anyone would ever say is like, let's write two books for the, for the, at the first time. But I have a friend who's a long time in traditional publishing and I read Harlan Coben's first book. And I read the first book. It said it was his debut novel. I read his book. I'm a big fan of Harlan Coben. And it was like all these reviews. And I read the book and it was just amazing. Like all of the reversals and the twists and this is magical and wonderful. And my friend was like, so you know, that wasn't really his first book, right? No. It's like, well, probably wrote like 20 books before they published his debut novel. And I was like, what? Why is this not public information? (laughs) This is basically lying. So you don't always know the whole story, right? There's lots of things that you don't know or you don't see. And so you really can't compare yourself to someone else. All you can do is say, someone is doing something that I want to do. Let me see if I can deconstruct what they did. Let me pay for an hour of their time. And so maybe they can give me the shortcut. Or maybe I can read all of their books and dissect it in that way. And use it as a, as a form of inspiration uh, instead of a way to make yourself feel like a failure. See previous segment about rules. <laughs> okay, so we're going to um, move away from mindset now, but I do have one last question for you on that. Um, yeah. A lot of authors deal with depression um, and discouragement especially. Uh, do you have any tips on how to maintain a positive outlook or even get back to a position of positivity um, even when you don't want to. I mean, I know when I've been in my depressed phases, I just, I don't care, you know? I mean, do you have any tips for authors who are there right now and how to get back to being productive again? Yes. So grace, giving self grace is the first thing. Getting a buddy is the second thing. Find someone who is positive when you're not and who you can be positive for them when they're not, right? So a writing group or a buddy. Um, I find that the fundamentals of the miracle morning are very helpful for just what you're talking about. So we talked about affirmations, meditation. I said that that's the first thing that I do. I put my earbuds in first thing in the morning and I do a meditation so I can shut my brain down. Like you shut your computer down so you can reboot it. Um, exercise is another one and it's not, um, P90X kids. You don't have to train for a triathlon. Okay. This is just moving your body. Like take your imaginary dog or your actual dog for a walk. Like just get out and just get some fresh air. Sit on your front porch or outside and get some sun. Do things that make you feel good that do not reinforce the depression, right? So it's like ice cream makes me feel good, but it also makes my pants not fit. That's where I'm going with that. So the destructive behaviors that you know are destructive aren't the ones that you go, well... I'm just going to have another pint of ice cream because that's probably not going to contribute to you feeling good. But if there is there a song that you listen to that makes you feel like you can do anything and like create that playlist, go for that walk, 
write those affirmations, listen to those affirmations, cancel out the negative things. Anyone else deleting social media from their phones right now and not going on social media, not turning on the television right now. We don't watch the news. We watch the Hallmark Christmas channel, right? Cause it's all happy all the time. Even if you cry at the end, it's because they got together (laughs) because somebody died, right? So it's being really careful about your psychology, what you're putting in, being really good to yourself in terms of drinking water, um, eating good foods, foods that are good for you, moving your body, yoga, all all of the things, right? So silence, affirmation, visualization, um, exercise, reading, journaling, scribing, writing your words the lifesavers from the miracle morning, all of those are going to be instrumental. And then here's the trick, like put together that string, like do it for one day and then just do it for the next day. Don't say I'm going to do a thousand days in a row. Just, I'm going to just do it today. And pretty soon you'll get addicted to how good that you feel and you won't want to not do it. And that will help my daughter has depression. I'm uh, like super schooled in this process, right? So it's like, sometimes you just have to go, well, I don't want to do it. And the reason I don't want to do it is because I don't want to do it, but I'm going to do it anyway. And then I'm going to do it with somebody and that's going to help me. But then you get yourself into an upcycle. And the trick really is to, to stay in that, in that habit chain, if that makes sense. So I have a total tons of compassion for that. And I know that for me, I have to turn off everything that doesn't make me feel awesome and not talk about anything that doesn't make me feel awesome. And then also, (laughs) ironically, I have to get enough sleep. (laughs) So, (laughs) So I know if I don't check my boxes, so figure out what your boxes are, right? You, the listener, you, Andrea, right? Like what are the boxes? Like where you're at your best self. So I know for me, if I'm not hydrated, rested, meditated, exercised, and fully chocolated up, I'm cranky. And a cranky honore is not a good honore, right? No one wants to, no one wants to see or hear that. So I make sure that I check all those boxes. And if I'm not feeling myself, it's like, which one do I need more of right now? And I go and I do that thing. I give myself grace. It's like, oh, I didn't write my words. Well, we didn't get enough sleep. Okay, well, we're going to try again tomorrow. Going to make sure that you take excellent care of yourself because you are your asset. You are your number one asset. You've got to take really good care of yourself. And if you make that a priority, make you the priority, everything else tends to fall into place at least a little bit easier. It makes all the other stuff easier. That's, that's really, really important. I mean, just like then the, this little voice back in my mind is like, I don't get a lot of sleep because of my kids. So if I make myself the priority, my baby who's teething, <laughs> so oh, I'm like, just kind of have yeah. to work through that, you know, cause some, yeah. some stages of life, you know, you just have to hit the most important things, which usually when I'm in that phase is eating, drinking, and sleeping. And that's yeah. basically the only thing yeah. I can do. And then grace, right. like you said, grace is a huge yeah. thing. Yeah. My daughter's just going to turn 21, like in a blink of an eye. But I remember when she was teething and you think when, when you ever you're in a phase, you think this is going to last forever. P.S. If it's miserable, you're like, yay, it's going to last forever. And it's miserable. <laughs> right. But you will go through that. You'll get through that and your writing will still be there. You'll still be there, but you still got to be there. So yeah. put the mask on yourself first. And honestly, here's the best thing is like when you're rested and fed and hydrated and all the things 
the words are going to flow because you're going to be excited to write the words because you're going to come from a place of a really solid foundation and you're going to just crush it. You're going to be so happy. You're going to be like, oh, why can't I be like this all the time? And then you, then you do that re- reverse like dissection. It's like, okay, how did I get here? I'm going to do more of that. Awesome. Um, I'll give you an invoice that you can send to me later. <laughs> oh, not at all. No, please. Like, I'm happy to help. I'm happy to help. I've been there. And if you've got one that's teething, like I'll come over and I'll hold the baby and you can write. <laughs> he's, he's a toddler. He's very late on teething. Just like he just started getting six teeth just recently. We were like, oh crap. Okay. <laughs> oh, well, I was going to say when you had babies, I was like duct tape and Jack Daniels, but you know, <laughs> it's like get the writing in but maybe not okay i don't want to go to jail for my advice (laughs) (laughs) for your advice all right so we're going to talk about the nifty 15 for a minute and the title is nifty 15 write your book in just 15 minutes a day Mm -hmm. um you co-authored this with brian meeks Uh, how did that process come about uh who came with the idea and how did you execute it together um Brian is my author buddy. So we call each other author buddy. And we met at a writer's conference in Austin. And and anybody, if you don't know Brian, you're missing out. He's just a treat and a half. He's just wonderful. He's a wonderful human. And we became friends. And I used the word nifty. And he said, I love the word nifty. And I was like, well, we should write a book with the word nifty in the title. And, and then we talked about... Uh, we talk a lot about how writers can get words written and how writers can sell more books and how writers can make a living from their writing. So all of those things came into um, writing the Nifty 15. And then we wrote two other books in the Prosperous Writer series, mostly because we liked each other, because we like each other and we wanted to work together and it was really fun. And so it was, okay, well, I'll write this part and you write that part. And, and we just co-authored it and it was lots of fun. That's really awesome. Um, so in this book, the nifty 15, uh, you talk about basically how to get your book written 15 minutes a day. And I know Brian Meeks has actually done that with a novel, correct? Yeah. Yeah. yeah he did it. Like while we were writing the book, he was yes. writing a book 15 minutes a day to, to make sure that we were giving good advice. We wanted to give. That's awesome. But Brian's uh, a data person. So he wanted the data to be solved. Oh yeah. Understandable. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> Okay. So what is, what is, or what are one or two things an author can do to get rid of the fear of not knowing where to begin? Um, great question. What are one or two things an author can do to get over the fear? Okay. So first of all, we just punch fear in the face and we say that it is invalid and we're going to just sit down and write the thing that's in our head. So what I am doing with fiction, which I did not do with nonfiction because you don't do it, is I take the scene of the characters and I just can let them do their thing in my head. And then I type that. And that's what I do. So when I don't know where to begin, I just close my eyes and I just let a little movie start to play in my head. And the fear tends to go away when we get into action. Um, a completely different piece of advice that I gave a minute ago, but I want to bring it back is to get yourself into the state of writing. And so figure out what triggers you to get into a state. And sometimes it's jumping jacks or push-ups. So sometimes you're like, well, I don't want to do push-ups. So I'm going to write because <laughs> I'd rather do anything but push-ups. And sometimes it's that act of getting your blood flowing. Um, I have a playlist. Some people have a playlist with no words because they can't write to words. But I listen to like Britney Spears and Def Leppard and like I have like a crazy fun playlist of songs that I want to dance or write or both. 
and they kind of get the the blood flowing and the words flowing. And so those, those are triggers for me. Like I sit down and I put the playlist in and all of a sudden it's like, oh, okay, this is the time that I write. And, and sometimes the words come faster than others. Sometimes they don't come at all, but I'm still putting myself in this seat. And I guess that's tip number three, like just butt in chair, just sit down, get your coffee. <laughs> I forget, I, I forget which author it was. I think it was the guy who wrote Moneyball. He had said that he, uh, his wife puts together a uh, writing playlist for him audio wise, and he doesn't choose the songs, but it's like Pavlovian. It's like, mm -hmm. you know, it she is. put the frozen soundtrack. It's like, you're writing to this for this book. And he's just like, well, I know that, well, that's music is writing. I, uh, is playing that I am writing and yes. it just becomes a thing. It's like subconscious. It just tunes you up. Yes, that is true. So, uh, okay. So a lot of authors use quotas to make sure they're making progress. And some people use word counts, which is what I do. Others use time. Uh, it, it sounds like this isn't uh, you know, advocating using your, your 15 minute quota. How do you assess your progress using a time-based quota to make sure you're actually moving forward at an appreciable rate? Because I know if I was saying I'm going to write 15 minutes a day, if that's how I was going to do it, the first 11 minutes would be me staring at the corner of the screen, trying to get my brain started. Yeah. So part of, part of the prep for the nifty 15 is like figuring out how you're going to capture the words. Are you going to speak them? Are you going to write them part of the prep? So there's some prep time too, is like making sure that, um, at the end of a writing session, does anyone else do this? Like I take a few notes about here's the next scene that I think I should be writing, but now I'm out of time. So when I sit down, I turn on the music. So that's Pavlovian, but I also, it's like, Oh, the detective is getting out of the car and he's going to go do the thing. Um, and then there's the pre-work, which is what are you going to write when you're sitting down, like writing your beats ahead of time. So writing your outline or writing your notes or writing some ideas. So you have a place to go from. And so for me, it's if I I'm writing from six to 7am every morning and I do, like I'm sitting there from six to 7am. It's like, Sometimes I'll have a 2,005 word hour and I'm like, yes, I'm going to be done by Saturday. And sometimes I have a 238 word hour and I'm like, but I have 238 words more than I would have had if I hadn't sat down to write. And so that's a win. Easy to feel good, hard to feel bad. Because I could beat myself up for one or the other, but I just refuse to do it because it's not productive for me. It's not going to help me to get where I want to go to be mean to myself. Yeah, I was actually going to ask you if you outline ahead of time because I'll the night before if I want to write a lot of words the next day I have to figure out the couple scenes and I take notes and so you know when you sit down exactly what you're going to write. Yes, I think I determined from from NaNoWriMo I got their little email that said are you a pantser, planter, or a plotter? So it's pantser which is you don't know what you're going to write, a plotter which is you know everything in advance, or the planter which is the middle. So I got the planter sticker. I'm an official planter, mostly because it's my first time or two and I don't know what I'm doing. So I'm just, I've decided I'm just going to have fun with it and we'll see what happens. All right. Sounds good. And last question for you, and then we'll let you go to bed is just for, the, for those people that feel like they don't get into the flow into the like a half hour, an hour in, um, do you have any suggestions for them on like how they can get there quicker and really, I mean, we kind of talked about outlining and knowing what you're going to write, but any other suggestions? Um, notice. So everything that we talked about, so not to repeat, right? 
Um, so rewind if you want to know what those were. Um, but also too, like do a little bit of a postmortem. At, like what, what happened at 30 minutes? Like what was it about that 30 minutes that got me into the flow and figure out if you can get there faster? It's like, um, going for a run. If I go for a run and I haven't done any stretching or any yoga, like it takes me about a mile before I'm not wanting to quit every second. But if I do 15 minutes of stretching or 10 minutes of stretching and I drink some water and I have the right music, I feel like it doesn't take that long to get into it. But I had to figure out what the, what the trigger was. Like I have to do five sun salutations before I feel that release. And I, I, does that make sense? Anybody do yoga? It's like yoga sucks. Yoga sucks every day for the first 10 minutes. And then after 10 minutes, I'm like, why don't I do this for the whole day? It's amazing. But it's like that first 10 minutes, but there's no way to get there before 10 minutes. Right? I do yoga, but I have a dog that likes to help now that we're all at home at the gym. So, yeah. so it's become difficult. <laughs> yeah. My dog shows me yoga. She's like, mom, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> this is downward dog. Whatever you're doing, this is terrible. Stop it. <laughs> yes. So I don't know that you, that, that that's the right answer. Like the, I don't know that there's a right answer for every person, but I do know if you pay attention, like at the third, at 30 minutes, what had to happen in those 30 minutes? And is there a way to compress what happened? into 15 minutes or 10 minutes or five minutes. That's really helpful. And I joined the club of yoga lovers, <laughs> except I have a toddler and the other two little kids who, who helped me and my husband when we're doing it. <laughs> of course. Yes. I actually do yoga before I write. So I do yes. yoga. I do the yoga. I have a little alarm on my phone at 5.25 AM that says, okay, stop doing the other things and get on the mat. And every morning I'm like, I'm going to get on the mat. I want to keep reading. I have my, my inner <laughs> child is, is resisting, but I just go get on the mat. It's like, shut up you know, bad on Ray, like good on Ray is getting on the mat and I go get on the mat. And so once I break a sweat and it's like, then it's like 10 minutes to six, it's time to get fresh coffee and tea. And by six o'clock I'm sitting, I'm ready to go. And I write with someone, right? So we're just like this on zoom, like, hi, we're writing headphones in and off we go. And that it's, I love that you said that Joseph Pavlovian, that is actually what it is. It's like, Oh, we put on, you know, that song that I can't say because it's got a, a cranky word in the title, but by Britney Spears. And it's like the minute that comes on, I'm like, you know, I'm doing a little thing and it's fun and I'm writing and hopefully it turns out good. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see what happens. <laughs> yeah. Well, this has been really helpful. Um, I think <laughs> that was my book. I just made money, guys. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> I didn't hear that. I that's, didn't that's hear awesome. that. That's awesome. I have book report too. I love book report. Anyway, I'm expecting a check from book report any day. <laughs> Sorry, that's embarrassing. That went off. <laughs> um, um, okay. So yeah, thank you so much for joining us. This has been very, very helpful, very beneficial. And I can't wait to re-listen because half the time when I'm doing these interviews, I'm like trying to pay attention well enough to know how to respond and I'm not internalizing things. And so I end up re-listening to our episodes um, regularly. <laughs> um, but I, I just, okay. So where can people find you? You have a lot going on coaching, anything you want to tell our listeners about anything that they can participate in. Um, and then of course the story bundle, all of that yeah, stuff. I was just going to say the story bundle and the nifty 15 is part of the prosperous writer uh, book series. And if you have any 
money blocks around making a prosperous living as a writer, that's a great place for you to start. Um, to get rid of the money blocks and get really clear that you can make a prosperous living as a writer, whatever that's defined for you, whatever money amount is defined for you. And if someone could do it, you can do it and just get yourself on that right path. And writing is amazing. Being a writer is cool. We're the cool kids, everybody. Everybody wants to write a book. Everybody wants to be a writer and we are writers. So you're already winning. And what is your website? Could you spell your name for those listening who, you know? <laughs> yes. Honoré Quarter, H-O-N-O-R-E-E-C-O-R-D-E-R.com. And then I'm at Honoré on all the socials, although I'm not socialing in the month of November. I'm Nano. Oh, you are socialing <laughs> right now on this podcast, though. <laughs> I am. Funny. I am. I'm socialing. Yes. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, yeah, it was really great having you on. So great to be here. Thanks so much. Um, and thank you to everyone for listening. And thank you to Joshua Pearson for producing the show. You can find the show notes or leave a comment or question, comment or question at sixfigureauthors.com with the number six. And that's pretty much it for today. Uh, we'll talk to everyone later. Bye. Bye guys. So long everybody. <laughs>